You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. Uh, Would you now open up your Bibles or open up your Bible apps on your phones? And I'm going to read us uh, our passage for today. It's Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through to 17. Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through to 17. Listen to God's word. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night... The Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks very much, Ralph, and good afternoon, everyone. I'm excited to be back in the book of Acts. This is uh, the return of our series. It's kind of 
the Empire Strikes Back version of Church Talks. So if you're a Star Wars fan, that'll make sense to you. But do keep your Bibles open. There's loads in this passage that we're going to be trekking through. So why don't we pray before we dive in? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can come before you this afternoon, no matter whether we've had a wonderful week or a very difficult week, knowing that you will speak to us as your word is opened. We do ask for your help in making sense of all that is in this incredible passage. And we pray that the things that we learn would make all the difference to us in the week, the month, the year that you have laid ahead of us. Amen. A number of years ago, I was, I was sat in an auditorium, not so different to this, but much, much bigger, and it was all down, down the road from here, and it was a packed auditorium. There was standing room only, and speaking on stage just like this uh, was the infamous speaker and proud atheist, uh, Dr. Richard Dawkins. And I was there in the auditorium when he called for an end of the toleration of Christians. He said that Christians should be removed from our workplaces, from our friendship groups, from our families, and even our communities. He said, tolerate them no more, have nothing further to do with them, hound them out. So it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? If you're a Christian here today, who could blame us if we were afraid? Who could blame us if we actually wanted to hide our faith? Yet the book of Acts tells us a really different story. You see, the book of Acts begins with Jesus telling the disciples an absolutely crazy, ambitious global vision. And it's in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and it's, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. A remarkable vision, isn't it? Ambitious, crazy. And the biggest... The biggest surprise in presenting this big vision to the believers is Jesus was saying that you are not the underdog. Isn't that remarkable? Can you wrap your mind around that a little bit? He's saying, take the message of Jesus to every corner of the planet. And by the way, the advantage is with you. Why does he say that? Because it often doesn't feel like that, does it? Because at the very beginning of verse 8, Jesus primes this big introductory vision by saying this in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You see, this is a game changer. Just absorb this just a little bit. Because if you're a believer here today, if you're anything like me, you've probably bought into the idea that we should be, as Christians, we should be timid about the gospel. We should be timid about sharing our faith. And gospel victories are as rare as a flying unicorn. So we should be timid and we should be cautious. 
And yet, what Jesus is saying is within every single believer is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, living within us, is the creative power, the one who brought the world and creation full into being. And so if you think back, those of you who were with us when we started the Acts series a little while ago, you'll remember that the believers, empowered by the Holy Spirit, well, they saw some remarkable things happen. Back in the last series, we saw that 3,000 people were converted and baptised in Jerusalem in chapter 2. We saw that Philip, who is a believer from Jerusalem, takes the gospel to Samaria, just as Jesus said they would. And then Saul, who is the great persecutor of the church, is converted and he changes his name to Paul. We saw that in chapter 9. And then the gospel continues to go out across the region, so much so that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, summarizes everything in chapter 9, verse 31, by saying the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit it increased in numbers. By chapter 10, Peter has taken the gospel to the first non-Jews. The word for that is Gentiles, we'll find in our Bibles, marked by when he took the gospel to Cornelius and his family. And then we saw that the church is established in Turkey in a place called Antioch, which is in chapter 10. And then in chapter 16, the gospel even goes as far as Macedonia in Asia Minor for the very first time. And then finally, our last series finished in chapter 17, verse 16, where the gospel reached Athens, the historic place of philosophy and learning and, and culture. It would have been like the gospel taking root in, in Oxford or Cambridge. And that's where our last series in the book of Acts took us. That was a quick rundown, wasn't it? You can catch your breath a little bit. But like every sequel, it almost feels as we begin our second go at the book of Acts, the next part of the series, it almost feels like we should have a kind of slow rolling introduction, doesn't it, that tells us where we're up to with the Roman Empire and the rise of the, uh, the resistance of gospel believers. Well, let me tell you where we're up to with that. Having left the ancient equivalent of Oxford or Cambridge, the Apostle Paul finds himself in the city of Corinth, which is the ancient Near Eastern equivalent uh, of Manchester, really. It's not very far from Athens, you can see that. But let me tell you about Corinth. Corinth was a huge city. It was one of the most um, remarkable cities of the Roman Empire. It was absolutely huge. Um, it was full of self-confidence. It was a sporting city. These guys had their own version of the Olympic Games. It was a city of the brave and the bold. In fact, um, the, uh, the Roman poet called Horace said of Corinth that it was a town where only the tough survive. You know, we've got a bee, haven't we, here in Manchester that people have as tattoos? This could be yours if you lived in Corinth. Only the tough survived. And here, the gospel has arrived. 
But let me whet your appetite a little bit about where we're, what we're going to see in the rest of this Acts series over the course of this summer. Because the adventures in Corinth, which is our first port of call today, our adventures in Corinth are actually representative in many ways of what's going to happen in the rest of the second half of the book of Acts. And let me tell you this, as we look at, the book of Cor- um, look at the book of Acts, and we look at particularly chapter 18, which is Paul in Corinth, a load of crazy stuff is going to happen. Now, you might have picked that up as Ralph was reading that. And there's so much stuff, I've kind of had a trouble grouping it, but I've kind of grouped the different events under this title, Four Surprising Signs of God's Power. Four Surprising Signs of God's Power. So let me ask you this before we dive into that. What type of excuses do you use to justify keeping your head down from serving the gospel in Manchester? What type of excuses do you use in your heart? What what type of things do you say to yourself when you're saying, look, I'm just not in a place right now, so I better just keep my head down and, and keep my faith private? Well, I think an obvious one for many of us is that we just feel so busy, don't we? We just feel so busy. We often feel like our heads are full. We feel like work, there's a lot to be done at work, isn't there? I don't really have time to think about reaching out to my friends or colleagues with the gospel. Perhaps some of us have financial troubles and we've just got to focus on bringing in the money, bringing in the cash, because actually that's the season of life we're in right now. So I want you to see what happens at the very beginning of our passage because this is the first excuse-busting surprise. And it's there, number one, surprise number one, we see that busyness builds a team. Busyness builds a team. It's a bit of a surprise, isn't it? Look at me at verses one to four. Paul connects with a married couple called Aquila and Priscilla. And this is a really exciting friendship. It spans Paul's missionary work across the New Testament. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila, really, you might argue, they are the first power couple of the early church. Let me explain why. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila, they join, after this point, they join Paul's mission team uh, and they go to the epic city of Ephesus. You know, they pack their suitcases, off they go in the second half of this chapter. And whilst they're there, they talent spot a guy called Barnabas, who goes on to be the early church version of Erling Haaland. You know, this guy is an absolute stormer of a missionary. And Aquila and Priscilla, they're the ones who see him and recruit him. And then they come, leaders in the church in Rome, at the very heart of the Roman Empire, these guys absolutely smash it. So how did Paul get connected with this incredible couple who are absolute movers and shakers in the early church? Well, did you notice it begins when Paul has to get a job to pay the bills to support his evangelism. Did you see that? Because Paul has to become a tent maker, that's how he ends up staying with this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, who are also in the same industry. 
And that's how they actually join forces together. Do you see that? It's a surprise, isn't it? Because, because what looks like to us frustration, even distraction from ministry, oh, I've got to go to work. Imagine the people I could talk to if I didn't have to worry about paying that bill or working that hard for them. Or, or if I wasn't so busy, imagine what I could do. Actually, the very frustration that you and I would use as an excuse to keep our faith private, keep our heads down, and just go undercover as believers in our city is the very thing in Corinth that seems to multiply the ministry. Isn't that a surprise? You see, how easy would it be if it was me, or I'm guessing if it was you, if you were in Paul's situation and, and you were busy having to make tents to earn a wage, how easy would it be to say, look, I'm just not in a place right now to share the gospel because I've got to settle down. I've got to save money. I've got to get into the new job. I've got to be in a better, more steady financial position. And then, and then I'll seek about serving the Lord in this city. But Paul says, no. Actually, do both. Hardship, frustration, busyness is an opportunity, a different opportunity perhaps, but an opportunity to step out for Christ. I wonder if there is um, an excuse that you're making that's actually holding you back from seeing the gospel opportunities around you. I wonder if there's something that you're currently telling yourself. If only that, I'll just get this sorted and then, and then, and then. I wonder if you are in danger of misinterpreting the sign of busyness as a red light to serving Jesus when actually your work, your busyness is a green light to get going for the Lord in whatever circumstance you happen to be in. I wonder, isn't that worth reflecting on? Well, come with me to our second surprise. Cancel culture sparks gospel interest. Cancel culture sparks gospel interest. Look with me at verses five and six. Uh, Paul's mission team cavalry arrive in the form of Timothy and Silas, and they find that Paul's strategy is knee-deep, really, into taking the gospel out, we would call that evangelism, amongst the Jews at the synagogue. But did you notice not all is going well for Paul? You see, the Jews, which would have been in a city of around about 200,000 in Corinth, that could have been a really big community. And these Jews were not in the mood for gentle, reasoned conversation about thoughts, beliefs, big questions of life over beard-stroking big questions over well-frothed lattes. They were not interested in that type of conversation. In fact, the Jewish community here in Corinth were absolutely furious with Paul. They were accusing Paul of hate speech, of blasphemy against their God and their community. And they were demanding that Paul would be deplatformed, that he would be stopped and they would be silenced. But I want you to notice the unexpected strategy change that Paul takes. He, he takes this... Um, 
Well, it's a kind of Jewish uh, response to being insulted, which is to kind of shake off your garments of dust in a place where you feel like you're rejected or you were unclean. And he does it to them. He's basically making the point to the Jewish community, well, hey, I'm off now. Don't say I didn't tell you. Don't say I didn't warn you. And then do you notice what Paul does? He promptly switches his mission strategy away from, I guess it would be Paul's preference or relative comfort zone, that is evangelism amongst the Jews. After all, Paul was really like a a professor of the Torah. And instead, he switches his mission strategy to reaching out to non-Jews, to Gentiles. The Gentile population in Corinth was a massive population in this city, and now Paul has no choice but to engage them. And do you see what happens? You can almost hear Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, he's almost laughing in the face of God's remarkable sense of humor. Look with me at verse 7, because... Verse 7 suggests that just as Paul leaves the synagogue, he literally just goes out of the door and visits the house next door. Do you see that? And then look what happens. As soon as he takes one defeat, it seems to open a totally different door to victory. Who does he find? He finds a man called Titius Justice. That is a non-Jewish name, so likely to not be a Jew. We're told that he's a worshipper of God. And that most likely means that he's someone who's sympathetic to the Christian faith, but would kind of be the type of person who'd want to do a discipleship explored course to find out more, or perhaps he's someone who became a worshipper of God through conversation with Paul. Can you see, from one door shutting, another one just seems to open. If it was me, and my guess is if it was you, and we faced this type of opposition, this type of cancelling and no platforming, we probably would have taken that as a sign, wouldn't we, to say, look, I've done my best, but I'm absolutely exhausted and I'm discouraged and I'm not in a place right now to talk to anyone else or to do something different. I just need to lick my wounds, recover, and it's a sign that I should stop. Yet do you notice that Paul does exactly the opposite? And it feels to me as we read the book of Acts that Luke is almost giggling with delight as he tells us how well this brand new strategy worked. Look at me at verse 8. Ironically, the change of strategy sees the synagogue leader, a guy called Crispus, him and his whole family become believers, and then a whole bunch of other people from the local neighborhood also become believers. Which makes me wonder, doesn't it, when we contrast ourselves to Paul, I wonder if we're too quick to give up. Do you find that? I wonder if we are in danger of misinterpreting the sign of disappointment in our lives as a red light to sharing the gospel with others when actually it was a sign of a green light to share the gospel with someone different. What do I mean by that? I mean this, I guess we do lots of events over the course of life at City Church to invite people to come and hear about Jesus. Most of the people that I personally invite don't come. They really don't come. 
For example, Christmas, which is one of our biggest evangelistic events of the year, I invited three friends to come. Pull up the car, I'm going to invite them to come this time. And so I did. And none of them came. None of them came. And so when it came to Easter, and we had another opportunity to share the gospel this Easter, do you know, I just didn't invite them. I just thought to myself, well, you know, look, I've tried. I wonder, I wonder if I was too quick to give up. There's a, a, a well-known missionary, he's... Um, He's died a number of years ago that I had the privilege of working with. He's called Michael Green, a remarkable guy, really. Um, He used to take the message of Jesus all over the UK and indeed all over the world. And he went on a a mission trip to Thailand. Uh, He took a team with him and in his suitcase... In his hold luggage, uh, they had lots of resources, lots of gospel tracts that they were going to give out. They were written in the Thai language, uh, and, and him and the team were really excited. All the resources were absolutely ready for them to hit the ground running when they got to Bangkok and start sharing all about Jesus. When they got to the airport, when they got to the airport, his suitcase wasn't there. You know, they thought it might have been lost or delayed or something like that. But it became apparent that actually it had most likely been stolen. All of the resources for the whole team, for the whole of the trip, gone. Now, if it was me, I would probably take that as a sign. Well, we, we tried, but it's not worked out. Let's just lick our wounds on the disappointment and perhaps go home, but not for, for Michael. Him and his team actually prayed. They prayed that the Lord might do something different, that he might open another opportunity. Fascinatingly, a number of days later, they got a phone call from the airport. They said, Mr. Green, uh, your suitcase has turned up. They said, is it, is it empty? No, everything's in it, as far as we can tell. And by the way, there's a note for you. He went to the airport, picked up his suitcase, and he read the note. Uh, It was from a man who said, excuse me, I am so sorry, I stole your suitcase. Um, As I was going through your things, I read one of the tracks that was in my own language, and I became a Christian. My huge apologies, I have returned everything. (laughs) God bless and thank you. Do you see, you know, we take these disappointments as a sign that we should stop. Actually, often these signs are no, perhaps God has an intention for us to reach someone new, someone different. I wonder if we, and I am speaking to myself on this one, I wonder if we are too quick to give up. And I say that particularly when God seems to use hardship not to stop us from stepping out of our comfort zones to serve him, but he often uses hardship, difficulty, disappointment, or pain as a tool to open up other doors of opportunity that we haven't even thought about. I wonder if that's something that you need to be aware of right now. 
Well, come with me to our third surprise in the passage. Surprise number three, discomfort leads to hearing God. It's easy to think, isn't it, when, when we see kind of the remarkable Apostle Paul in passages like this one in Corinth, that the Apostle Paul was a bit like a missionary version of John Wick. I don't know if you've ever seen the films. You know, it doesn't matter whether you shoot him or bash him or run him over, throw a grenade at him. He just seems to keep going. He's holding his Bible and he just wants to share Christ and nothing seems to slow him down. But actually, that is not the case. That is not the case. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, when Paul is writing sometime later to the church in Corinth, Paul says, I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. He's terrified. He didn't come as a superhero. And that makes sense, doesn't it? When we read verses 9 and 10 of our passage in chapter 18, we read that one night the Lord speaks to Paul in a vision saying, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Why would God say this to bulletproof Paul? Well, most likely God would say this because despite the new believers, despite all the success of the outreach so far, it's most likely because Paul is really afraid. And perhaps he's ready to say to the Lord, look, I'm sorry, I'm just not in a place right now to do this. I'm going to quit. And so God in his kindness, gives Paul a promise and a sign. Look with me at verse 10. He says, For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. You see, Paul's got a personal protection promise from God here, hasn't he? And more than that, and I found this fascinating, this vision that Paul gets from God to say he's going to be safe is actually in the language of an Old Testament passage, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 18. And if you were to go back to 1 Kings, what you would find is the great prophet Elijah. He was an absolute famous uh, prophet, one of the kind of big kind of spokespeople from God. And it's a time when this prophet was, he was depressed. He was disillusioned and God takes him to the top of this mountain and he says to Elijah, and Elijah is in his real low point, he says to Elijah, look, keep going. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, that's an idol, and whose mouths have not kissed him. And the point that's been made here is absolutely startling that Paul can be confident of God's promise to him in Corinth because it echoes this really famous promise that God gave to Elijah, one of the most famous prophets of all time. And as a result, we're told exactly what happens. Paul doesn't quit. He stays in Corinth to share the good news of Jesus for a year and a half. Discomfort leads to hearing God. That's the case for Paul, isn't it? How can this be? Because I imagine if you're anything like me, this probably feels very counterintuitive. We've kind of been trained to interpret discomfort and disappointment as God shutting a door, even God abandoning us. We've kind of taken things not going our plan to God almost turning his back on us. 
But actually, that's not the case. And this passage is a really example that often hardship leads us to deeper trust of the Lord than we had before. You see, most of us see pain or disappointment or fear as a sign that we should quit. But for Paul, it provides the opportunity for God to give him a promise, to give him encouragement, a special sign to keep him going. Now, I wonder if you're thinking as you read this passage, well, that's all very well for Paul, but what about me? If I had some type of promise from God that he would give me protection and success in Manchester, then I would be just as bold and I would be just as courageous in my office, my workplace, my school, my university. Do I get a promise like that? Well, the answer is kind of yes and no. No in the sense that this was a promise specific to Paul in this moment. But yes... If you look at verses 12 to 16, you're curious now, aren't you? Look at verses 12 to 16. Verses 12 to 16 are this mini drama at the very end of our passage. And it is a sign that God is giving personally to you. Whoever you are, wherever you're watching, this is a sign for you today. And that takes us to our final surprise, surprise number four. The cross is the only sign you need. Let let me show it to you. On the surface, in this passage, verses 12 to 16 are a demonstration that God's promise to Paul in Corinth is is a good one. Can you see Paul is dragged to the Roman authorities by the Jews. They're protesting. They're offended by his message. So they take him to the the Roman proconsul. He is the kind of person who's going to judge Paul uh, to see whether he's going to be punished Uh, for what he's done. And he's brought before a Roman official called Gallio. Now, Gallio, interestingly, was the brother of a really famous celebrity of the time called Seneca. Seneca was very powerful. He was very wealthy. He was very famous. Everyone looked up to Seneca. Gallio, well, he was like you know, the forgotten brother. So in some senses, think of Gallio a little bit like Prince Harry. Okay, so Paul's dragged before someone who's a little bit like Prince Harry, and um, he's he's brought to this place called the Seat of Judgment, and that was a chair that was seven and a half feet um, above the crowd. Okay, it was put on a massive platform, and it was like an outdoor court where Paul would have been judged. And amazingly, Gallio lets Paul go free. Do you see that? But just as God's promise to Paul pointed back to a really significant event in the life of the prophet Elijah, this moment, these final verses of our passage, actually point us back to a significant moment in the life of Jesus. Did you notice the similarities? Do you see it? Jesus, like Paul, was captured by an offended and incensed community of Jews. Jesus, like Paul, was brought before the Roman authorities for judgment. And Jesus, just like Paul, heard the Roman official say, look, he's not my problem. But then there's a twist. Did you see that? Paul is released from the judgment seat. 
But do you notice that in his place, the, 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 the fury, it's almost like the wave of the sinful, rebellious violence of the mob, it crashes on a guy called Sosothenes. Paul is released. And all of that fury, all of that sinful rebellion, all of that violence falls on this other guy over here. I wonder if that outrages you. Are you comfortable with that? You see, Sosothenes might have been one of the people calling for Paul's arrest, but surely he doesn't deserve this injustice, this torture, these beatings, this injustice of being ignored by the authorities that we read. Surely he doesn't deserve being a victim of abuse. Could Paul be indifferent to the fact that his protection came at the price of another? Could Paul be indifferent to the fact that on paper, it should have been Paul who was beaten and mocked and a victim of violent abuse? On paper, it should have been Paul, but he went free whilst another took his place. Are you incensed by that? That sense of injustice? Because this is exactly what happened to you, if you are a believer. Verses 12 to 16 are an echo of when we were released from the judgment seat of God, when despite all of the injustice of everything that we've ever done wrong to God, he let us go free and said that you will never pay the cost in full of all of the things that you've done wrong. And in our place, Jesus took the punishment on our behalf so that we would always have access to the safety of God's forgiveness and a place in the new creation where because of the good news of Jesus, we would always be held by God, not as an enemy, but as his child. You see, this passage has reminded us, hasn't it, that the signs that God gives to encourage us to keep going, keep trusting in him, well, they're, they're really often not the signs that we imagine. They're not the signs that we expect. But as we finish, it's good to remember that the ultimate sign that God gives us to have confidence, to step out of our comfort zone, to serve him wherever he's placed us, the ultimate sign is for us to look to the cross. You see, Paul's sign from God in Corinth gave him a guarantee that his body would be protected for 18 months. 18 months. And that promise of protection, well, it totally changed his priorities. It totally changed his courage to go out. Your sign from God, a sign that you can see today, even as you come to this church in Manchester, as you see the sign of the cross, 
It is a sign to you that gives you a guarantee that your soul will be protected, not for 18 months, but eternity. That you will always be held in the arms of a father who loves you and who will never let you go. Not for 18 months, but eternity. So let me leave you with this question. How will that sign change your life today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we come before you knowing that we are too easy with our excuses to turn our back on the opportunities that you provide for us to step out and serve you in this city. And yet we are reminded that the great sign of the cross means that we offer, we have in you a protection against the worst possible scenario, that with you our eternity is safe, our souls will always be unharmed, and that we are held by our Heavenly Father, not as an enemy, but held as a beloved child. Amen.